As we come back together this morning, we begin our Lenten series. We'll be preaching through various uh, sections of Romans over the next few weeks and uh, other letters of Paul. And we are reflecting in this Lenten season on the realities of what it means to acknowledge our need for Christ and how it is that that singular focus on the love of God, allowing that to dwell richly and deeply in our lives and our hearts becomes a means by which God keeps us close to Him and delighting in and enjoying the goodness of His creation and His good gifts. It is a time to reflect not simply on how we might keep the law better, but to a great degree, why do we feel such animosity and challenge for the law? Why is it that I wrestle with doing good things? Things that are fairly common sense, and yet, because they are difficult, or because simply I was told to, the Lord and I have a particular challenge and rub. What is it that needs to change? And what has changed that I simply have not rightly appreciated and acknowledged? So this morning we're going to jump in with Romans uh, chapter 10. Uh, I've told folks before, I'm almost ready to start preaching out of Romans. I don't know, I've been in the ministry 20 years and the book terrifies me, but I feel like Maybe, which is dangerous now, because if you start to feel like you might be able to preach Romans, is probably the leading indication that you really shouldn't. Uh, but regardless of that, we'll pray for the Holy Spirit here in a moment. But we're going to start in Romans chapter 10. We're going to read verses 8 through 13, very familiar passage uh, for many of us, a wonderful reminder of the goodness of God and the gospel here from the Apostle Paul. Hear now God's word. But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth, and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew or Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing His riches on all who call on Him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the Word of our God stands forever. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, You have shown Your power and Your might, Your love and Your grace. You have shown that you will never leave us or forsake us, that you are patient and that you are merciful. And we ask this morning that as we open your word, the realities of who you are, generation after generation, might again dwell richly in our minds and our hearts, that our hearts might again fall deeper in love with our Savior. We pray, Lord, that any words said this morning that are not useful for the building up of your people in the truth of who you are, that those words would quickly be forgotten. In Christ's name, amen. So, in reading a few scholars on these uh, passages that we have in front of us, this idea of temptation 
they came at it in a way that I, I'd really never thought of before. Uh, that, that something is a temptation only if I think it is better than or nicer or would be more fun for me, right? There are a lot of things you can't tempt me with because I just don't care. It's not that interesting to me. Or I'm too ignorant to know that it would be nicer to have, right? And so the temptation itself reveals a lack of satisfaction with where I am and what I have. This becomes the issue, of course, in marriage, right? As we fall deeper in love with our spouse, in theory, it becomes less tempting to notice somebody else's spouse. It is that challenge that it is our love that determines what will or will not tempt us to the right or to the left. To look at anything other than the focus of our love. The focus of that thing that we desire more than anything else. And Paul has been addressing this issue in relationship to his Jewish brothers and sisters since chapter 8. And in the book of Romans, he's trying to help the Jewish and the Greek Christians come to an understanding of how they are one in Christ and both of their histories and cultures have some value. And yes, there was particular value and opportunity for the Jewish believers who grew up with the promises of the covenant to understand the fulfillment in the Messiah, the Jesus of Scripture. And they had that opportunity, and it was an advantage, but Paul keeps laboring with them, you've fallen in love with the wrong thing. You didn't fall in love with God, you fall in love with the means by which you can get to God. The verses just before, I'm not sure why the lectionary doesn't have us read it, talk about how you can't search heaven, and you can't go across the sea, and you don't find God out there. And you will never go far enough, but it's interesting enough that he's actually come close to you. Now the key passage that we need to reflect on that, that, under, uh, that undergirds Paul's uh, teaching here is Deuteronomy chapter 30. And I encourage you, if you have your scriptures, you can put a finger in it or read it later. But Paul talks about his argument or works through his argument the same way that Moses does in his description of how God will come and restore his people after they rebel and leave and follow loves other than the one true God. The context here then is how God is faithful to his people and woos them by exhibiting his own love and care and by showing them a transcendent compassion and a singular focus. This is how much he loves you and me. This is how much he loves his people that nothing distracts him from his pursuit of restoration with you and with me, which is why it then logically follows that that love would capture our hearts as our hearts are renewed and transformed that we might become singularly focused in our love for him, and therefore find context for all that we do. And so that's the basic idea of the sermon, and we'll walk through it, but we'll do what I normally do, which is uh, we'll start at the 
end and, and then jump around. Uh, we're going to go to verse 13. If you look at your scriptures, uh, it says, For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Now, that verse is often used in our culture in a way in which, gosh, if you said the magic phrase, then you're a Christian, and therefore, because you've said the magic phrase, God is somewhat constrained to let you into heaven. Regardless of how you live or to what degree you ever darken the door of uh, Scripture or His house. I don't mean a church particularly. I do mean uh, that fellowship with God's people. And we've got to ask ourselves a question, and this is a legitimate question. Is God an idiot? That is to say, has God set up something in such a short uh, mindset that He creates a phrase like, you can confess Jesus is Lord... And then the silly guy is constrained for all eternity, regardless of what else you do, to let you in. Now what I don't mean here is that God is uh, looking for us to then achieve a bunch of righteousness. What I am saying is that what Paul is saying is that there is a love connected to it. We actually can't confess that Jesus is Lord unless we are becoming uh, more and more aware of His love and being drawn into that love. That's the context of this passage. That's the context of Deuteronomy. I loved you. I chose you. I brought you up. I brought you through a desert. I've wanted to be with you. I tabernacle with you. And yet you keep chasing other loves. But I will restore you. In fact, someday I will give you a heart that will never leave me. Really is an ethic of love. And so the reality that inadvertently we might create a, a religion, and it would be a religion, that says if you say certain phrases or do certain things, the divine is compelled to let you in, is compelled to give you whatever bonus points or money or, or long life or health or what have you. As if God can be manipulated or God was silly enough to set up a structure where we could game it. So we have to see that what is being said in verse 13, that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved, is a quote and is an understanding of a cry of a heart that is falling in love with God. That there is no magic phrase snuck into Scripture by which we can, in a dispassionate way, but out of pragmatism, acknowledge that there's a divine being there and he may or may not have good things for me, at least in the next life. But in the meantime, you stay on your side of heaven and I'll stay on my side of earth. It's not what Paul's setting up. This verse cannot be used in that fashion because the context is love. How do we know that? Well, verse 8, Jesus came. Jesus came. And this is referring back to the answer to the problem of Deuteronomy 30, verses 11 through 14. I'm going to go ahead and read those. If you have your scripture, I encourage you, like I said, to turn there. For this commandment that I am commanding you today, this is Moses speaking, is not too hard for you, neither is it far off. It is not in heaven that you should say, who will ascend to heaven for us and bring it down to us? that we may hear it or do it. Neither is it beyond the sea that we should say, who will go over the sea for us and bring it to us, that we may hear it and do it. But the word is very near to you. It is in your mouth 
and in your heart so that you can do it. And of course, the challenge is that it doesn't feel that way. Certainly was a challenge for most of Israel's history. It is often a problem for God's people even now. But the promise is that because of Christ, the Spirit dwelling in us, this is the answer to actually having a mouth and a heart that speaks and desires to know more intimately the reality of God. Jesus comes. Verse 8 says, uh, how does this happen? Verse 9 says, it is with your... It, because if you confess with your mouth, a little chiasm here, confess with your mouth, heart, heart, mouth again. Nine, uh, because you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that he raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Now, a couple of interesting and fun points here. Because you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, right, means two things to the church in Rome. First, that means Caesar's not Lord, because it's the same term used for Caesar, which you've probably heard before. But it's also speaking to the Jewish believers that Jesus is the Messiah. Both people are potentially having their cultures confronted. One, can I give loyalty to Rome and to Jesus? No, one Lord. Can I believe that God will still send a Messiah? Do I have to believe in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ as the Lord of the Old Testament? Yes. Both are confronted with who Jesus is. And so this confession with our mouth is a one that leaves us with only one Lord. One ruler of our hearts, one ruler of our lives, one ruler of the world itself. And that he was raised from the dead. Again, that's an offense. It's an offense to the Romans and the Greeks because they believed in shades and some other existence after life. It is problematic for the Jew because if it's true that he got up in a body that would never be destroyed and went to sit at the right hand of the Father, that he really is the Lord, which means it happened. Everything they've been looking for, what Moses prophesied, what all of the pre-exilic and post-exilic uh, prophets prophesied, all of the promises came true in a guy who was an ex-carpenter who had a few motley crew followers who got himself killed by the Romans. There was no successful rebellion. There was no taking back of the temple with flash of swords and trumpet. He just got killed. And then maybe raised from the dead. I have to now believe in faith that all of these people who saw him, that I hear the testimonies of, that actually resurrection happened in the middle of history. That it's not just some future promise, that it's already started. Because if it's already started, there are a whole lot of logical things that follow for a Jewish believer. If the kingdom has already started, everything changes. The understanding of temple changes. The understanding of kingdom changes. It is redefined and rewritten in who Christ is. These are difficult passages that pull at the heart of who we are. Whether our heart comes from a more secular culture as we transition into Christianity like a Roman, or whether we come from an incredibly religious background and have to die to our religion and embrace the reality of the gospel, it pulls at our very heart and how we identify ourselves and how we know what is right and what tempts us, what we're pursuing as a means of significance and security. 
Paul confronts them both, even in this comforting passage. Verse 9b, where your heart treasures in verse 10. Right, he, he, he moves from the mouth what you confess to, of course, what's at the core of who you are, our hearts. And he says, if you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified. Now again, this is not... We've we, we got to be careful about not getting too excited of engaging in wonderful theological obscurities about justification. That's not the point of Paul right here. What Paul is saying is that what you love, what you love defines who you are. And it is falling in love with Jesus that is the means by which one finds ourselves holy, acceptable, and justified in the presence of God. It is His love for us that even allows our hearts to imagine following in love with Him. I'm not suggesting here that you drum up some love for God and then God will love you back. My stars, that would never happen. But it is knowing that in the reality of God's love and our falling in love with Him that we find ourselves covered by the blood of Christ and enjoying what it means to stand rightly before our God. The heart one believes and is justified. It's not a theological thing, although our minds are not completely disengaged. But it is getting to the heart of the matter. What do you love? Do you love the idea of being justified or do you love Jesus and are therefore being justified? And that's a little difference in language, but it makes all the difference. Do I love the idea of not going to hell? Yes. But do I love Jesus? Do I love Jesus because he keeps me out of hell or do I love Jesus? Do I love God? Yes, the implications are amazing and freeing. But this is where temptation comes. If I love God as a means to my own end, I'm regularly tempted by short-term things that allow me to feel pleasure or safety or security or superiority or significance. I'm regularly going to be tempted to out, uh, lash out in anger or rip down somebody's uh, character. I'm going to be seduced by the beauty of another or what another has. Because I'm always trying to fill this hole that cannot be filled. And so in the midst of that, if I'm a little worried, because I'm getting chronologically advanced, that there may be an end to this thing, that heaven is a nice thing to have in my back pocket. But that's not because I'm falling in love with Jesus. It's because I love me and I'm making plans for my future. But to fall in love have the heart believe and believe in the future right because we know i do this all the time in premarital counseling i tell people look the reason we get married in public and make vows is because you will stop loving your spouse at some point in the near future 
at least in the romantic way that you are now, or in certain ways, what you're doing is promising future love come what may. A love that is covenantal, that says even in the midst of days when I and my selfishness may not find you as lovable or you in your selfishness become less lovable, I will love you. Not based on what you do for me in the moment, but in the reality that I'm covenanting with you to love you. Come what may. It's why marriage is the closest thing that Protestants have to a non-sacramental sacrament. Because it mirrors the reality of what it means for God to make an unconditional commitment to his people. That is where we find our peace. That is where we are declared right and righteous in the presence of God. But it doesn't stop there. We move on to verse 11 quickly. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. Fidelity is honorable. Fidelity is honorable. It doesn't mean that the world won't shame you. It doesn't mean you won't get uh, strung up or burned at the stake or various other and sundry ways that the world may desire to shame you in public. It doesn't mean that Christians were not uh, run out in certain ways in which the cultures that they existed in didn't try and shame them. That's not the point. The point is you will find that as you fall in love with Jesus and therefore act and increasingly desire to do as Jesus does, you will find that you have nothing to cover up. You won't have to lie. You won't have to steal. You won't have to feel the shame of infidelity, of love of self, of love of money, of love of power. You will find that you have less and less to be ashamed of. Falling in love with Jesus, being in line with who you were created to be, interestingly enough, even though I fight it, does lead to a less shameful life. Me shaming my life, not other people shaming me. We will not be put to shame. Well, Lord, but if you ask me to do this, I'm terrified that somebody will think less of me. If I don't stand up for myself, if I'm too generous and put my family at risk, if I leave and follow Jesus in a place like Iran and undermine my financial security, will I be put to shame? Isn't it easier just to pretend that you're still uh, following Muhammad even though you're secretly following Jesus, and the answer is God always says, no, you, you can't serve two masters, and you have to declare my name. Now, you can be wise about it, but you can't say you worship somebody else when you truly worship me. That's just pragmatically unwise. If I want to stay safe. But when we follow Jesus... When we fall more in love with him eternally, and even in the moment, we have what shame is redefined. Shame is now defined as a lost opportunity to do good within his, my power to do good. To extend love and patience and forgiveness as Christ does. To miss the opportunity to respond as a peacemaker rather than a warrior. See, my only shame is the cross. As we sang this morning, fidelity is honorable. It leads to a life without anything to hide. It is rich 
and free of fear. For the kids that are still left in the room, I encourage you to recognize in your own lives where even now you battle this. Because you have moms and dads who tell you things that they know to be wise because they're further down the road and you're pretty sure they just want to suck the fun out of your life. They don't want you to have fun at that moment. They don't want you to enjoy something for whatever reason. In our minds, we begin to foster that. And listen to me, children, if you foster that now, you will foster it in your relationship with God. You're practicing for how you interact with a loving individual who knows more than you do. And to the degree that you foster that thought now that you are being robbed of something by the rules imposed upon you, you will have that same issue with God the rest of your life. Your parents wrestle with, all right, now I don't know about your parents, your pastor wrestles with having fostered that belief system that somehow I was being denied pleasure, denied joy, denied experiences by the rather puritanical notions about sex and money and fun and booze. I was being denied something that the world told me was a brilliant and wonderful thing. And how could those people want me to not have fun? And as I fostered that thought, I planted seeds that have reaped not fruit but weeds that make it difficult to trust a loving God who asks me to do things that I don't understand and feel far more restrictive than I would like. You're practicing right now. There is no time when you are not practicing to trust somebody who loves you and knows more than you. And you will be tempted in your life, especially when you get to teenage years, if not earlier. These are the most painful things that parents experience. But at a moment of crisis and anger and frustration, you will tell your parents that you don't think that they actually love you. Because if they loved you, they would let you do whatever it is that you think you should be doing. Those are words that cut to the quick. And then you go out and you do something really foolish. And you realize that it wasn't merely a power play. It wasn't an Oedipus issue. It was simply the reality that they knew the pain and the scars that would come from engaging in whatever thing you felt at that moment was the most important thing in your life. We're always practicing for what it means to trust somebody who says and shows that they love us unconditionally. Can God do any more to show us that he loves us? What more would we ask? And yet to this very day, I wrestle with whether or not he denies me things that I see would give me at least momentary pleasure and distraction because of his arcane rules that seem so passe in our free and open society. 
But there is no shame in a life that is falling more and more in love and confesses the virtue and the reality of the wisdom of the one who made us. Verse 12, For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. And as our brother Matt mentioned today, one of the last things that falls is our need to have an other. The more we fall in love with Jesus, the less need there is for an other. An other to fear, an other to blame, an other to covet and desire, an other to conquer and establish position. There is simply the elimination of the other and the recognition that we are created in the image of God and that God desires to see that image restored and renewed so that the world might see the light of a God whose love transforms, a God whose love restores, and in ways that I can scarcely imagine, pours out riches, riches for eternity, riches that do not rust, where moths cannot destroy and thieves will not break in, and all of the riches of that life which include beautiful scenery and gorgeous feasts and unending fellowship and music and beautiful architecture and art and fill in the blank. It is not a spiritual world in which we just don't suffer. It is a rich physical world where the riches of God are restored to all of his people and there's a foretaste of it now and there's eternity of it ahead of us because the resurrection is true and therefore, the riches of God are not contained. My grandmother just passed away, 102 years old. It's a speck in the eternity that lies before that great saint. And yet I live obsessed with these 80 or 90 years. I don't want to live to be 102. Obsessed and regularly tempted follow the loves of this world without a recognition of the eternal love that lies before me. Lent begins with a reflection upon what we really love. Because interestingly enough, Lent becomes a lot easier and a whole lot less self-denial if we don't think we're giving up things that have value in the eternal sense. If we're falling in love, then Lent becomes another time that we're able to process and to perceive and to focus on a life lived on those things that where true richness and joy are found. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask that you be merciful to the preaching of your word. We ask, Lord, again, that we might know the love that you have showered on us. Lord, Make it overwhelming that we might have peace with you and delight in you. And Lord, that we might see the wisdom of what it is to follow your law, the goodness of it, to trust you in ever greater degrees, that you might be glorified and that many might be drawn to you. In Christ's name, amen.